So, hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right into Acts chapter 17. So we've been in our series called Resurgence since last fall, and we've been walking through the book of Acts. And what we're doing in this process is we're revisiting the past to take hold of the future, which means we're looking back in the book of Acts to 2,000 years ago and then asking the question, what was the church like then, and what does that mean for us today? How are we supposed to live our lives? So uh, I wasn't here last week. Uh, if you weren't here, I missed you. You missed me, but you missed a great Sunday. Lauren spoke, Pastor Lauren, who uh, directs our children and youth. She did a great job. And so if you didn't get a chance to hear her message, you can go online and you can listen or you can watch that message. Uh, but this morning we're going to get into the second part of chapter 17. She started with the first part. We'll get into the second part, which uh, is a really incredible story how Paul goes into a city that is the polar opposite of what you and I would want to live in. It is the opposite of Christianity. It's pagan. It's wicked. It's idolatrous. It's wrong. But it's the very place that God is at work in the lives of people. This morning we're going to talk about something, and, and, and what I'm hoping will happen as we look at this passage and we go through this together, is that our minds are going to shift in the way that we view God and the way that we view people. Because this morning I want to talk about the, this, the kind of this question, how far are people who are far from God? Now most of us, if we're honest with our answer, we have an idea of the way that we view people in terms of the world. We really have, if you're a follower of Jesus, a lot of times we default to two categories of people. One is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you see yourself, although some days you don't feel as righteous as others, I get that, you see yourself close to God, at least in the proximity of where God is. And if God's over here, you feel close. But then when you start to look at the world around you, you look at the brokenness around you, look at the sin, you look at the failure, you look at things that seems to be opposed to what God would want in people's lives, we have another category, and those are people who are far from God. God's over there, and the rest of the people who are not followers of Jesus, they're in this other category that's way over here. Now, when we go into this passage today, you're going to understand this thinking is absolutely incorrect. It's not even biblical. But we put it into our minds, and this is the way it is, and that's why we end up getting isolated from the world that we live in because we think these two categories. But what we'll learn today is actually there's nobody on the face of the earth that God is far from. God is actually close to everyone. But some just haven't discovered who he is yet. And this is so important because when we shift this, it, it changes the way that we understand what our role in the world is and the fact that God is at work in people around us, which means that people are closer to God than we think. Even though we may not like them or, or their behavior or whatever they do in their life, God loves them so much that he has chosen not to distance himself. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, we don't get to choose to distance ourselves either. It's a switch. It's a flip of our, our understanding. Put it this way. So this last week, uh, we were gone last weekend because we went up to Oregon to see Courtney graduate from college, which was an exciting time for Kim and I. And uh, so we went up to a familiar place. Obviously, we lived in Oregon for seven years. Uh, but when we were coming back down, um, uh, we were flying southwest. Anybody flown southwest before? I hate Southwest, just you know, it's great prices, but I hate the cattle call, I hate the fact that you gotta line up and you're jockeying for position. And this whole thing, if you've known how you've flown so Southwest, uh, 24 hours before you check in and you try to get in, in the A group so that you're towards the front of the line so you can pick the best seats, anybody know what I'm talking about? And you stress out, no joke, I was on, on our flight up, I was on, on 24 hours before to the second, hitting, you know, return, 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 return. Still, even though literally I counted like three seconds after the 24-hour check-in, 30 people still got in front of me. I don't know how they did it. They just did it. So anyway, so we're coming back, and, and the flight was relatively full on our, on our flight back down. And so uh, you can know how it works. If you're in group A, you get on first, then group B, and the, then group C is the losers who either didn't check in or they were really slow, Right. And you feel that. They come walking on the plane. All the overhead bins are taken. All the good seats are taken. All that's left is like middle seats and seats nobody wants. And so I can see coming down the, the aisle, there's this couple, and they just don't, do not look happy. They're like frustrated, and they're looking for seats. And they get to, Kim and I were sitting. We had, we had learned something really important about when you fly. You know, if you fly into Burbank, they deplane off the front and the back. So actually, in the back is not a bad place to be. So we intentionally got to the back of the plane. So we're second from the last row in the plane. This couple comes back, just dejected. There's one seat next to me. The wife sits down. Her husband has to go across the aisle and back a row because there's no seats. She sits down, just takes a deep breath. And I said, did you not check in? And she goes, what do you mean check in? 
I said, have you never flown Southwest? She goes, no, we haven't flown Southwest. I said, oh, I said, you're new at this, aren't you? She goes, yeah, I didn't know all these people got here and they're calling out groups and I don't know, we're like in the last spot and we get on the plane. I said, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? She goes, yeah, I just don't get this. I said, yeah, I said, actually, if you wait 24 hours before, you can try to get into group A. In fact, here's another secret. If you pay an extra 15 bucks per ticket, they do it for you. So you can get to the front of the line. She goes, are you serious? She goes, I wish I would have known all this information. And she's completely, like, she's yelling across the aisle to her husband, like, we didn't know what we're doing. <laughs> and I said, but here, here's the best secret of all. I said, you think you're in the worst seat, don't you? She goes, well, yeah, we're at the back of the plane. I said, no. I said, we're flying into Burbank. She goes, what happens in Burbank? I said, you go get off the front of the plane and the back of the plane. She turns around, there's one aisle between us and the exit. I said, actually, you're in the best spot possible. Then she yells to her husband again, hey, we're at the back of the plane. Do you know that? Everybody's like, she's a newbie. She doesn't know what she's doing. Southwest. But it's this shift where if you and I understand, there isn't a front row and a a back row with God. Remember, that's why Jesus says, even in the kingdom, that the first will be last and the last will be first. There's a shift in our thinking that God loves people so much that he doesn't create a distance. In fact, he's always present close to people. They just have to discover who he is. That means for us, we have to understand that if that's the way God works, then the culture we live in, by the way, is not evil. And people are not the enemy of God. The enemy is the enemy of God. Satan himself, but people are not God's enemy. Therefore, people are not our enemy. And that means that God is constantly working in people's lives. And so with, with this kind of understanding, I want us to look at the passage. I'm going to read through the last part of, of chapter 17, which is verse 16 down to verse 34. So I want you to just to, to listen. This is Paul's encounter. He goes into a city called Athens, which is as pagan and as wicked as you could find. But listen to what happens through this encounter. So this is Acts 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed by along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all the fa- on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So in this encounter, it's really important what's happening here because before we'll, I want to jump into what does this mean for us, but before I do that, the, the, the culture and the context of what we're reading where Paul's living is something that we would, if in modern days, we would equate it with like Las Vegas or some other place where we think that's a sinful city, that's a wrong city. That's Athens, filled, filled with idolatry. But what you and I have to understand is that what Paul was walking into is not very different than what you and I live in today. So many times we read the Bible and we think, oh man, Paul, if Paul lived today, he wouldn't have a chance. 
It's so much harder. It's so much more evil. The world is just a horrible place, and it's not like it was back then, as though somewhere back then people didn't sin, people didn't struggle, and there weren't idols. But what I want to do before we talk about what it means for us is understand the cultural comparison between what Paul lived in is very similar to the world that we live in today, even though 2,000 years of history has passed. Three things I just want to highlight so you, can, I, you and I can see the parallel. It's really important because we don't get off on this, this idea that, well, it's harder today than it was for Paul. No, we're in the same context. So let me just three things of comparison. Look at verse 16. What did they have that we have today? Cultural comparison. First thing is this, mainstream idolatry. So Paul says, as it says about Paul, as he walked into the city, he saw it was what filled with idols. So there's places of worship all over Athens. There's, there's altars built to gods. Everywhere he turns, there's these idols. He sees them. That's his context. Now, when you and I think, well, we don't have a context like that. Well, you don't walk around Simi Valley or Moore Park or wherever you live, and you don't see altars set up to different gods around the city. But we have just as many idols as Paul did in his day. They just look different. But they still, they still come after us in terms of wanting our attention and our affection to pull it away from God. Our, our idols look different, but they do the same thing in our lives. So I could go through a, a long list of, of what idols are in our, in, our, in our context, in our culture, but let me just name one of them that many times we don't consider an idol, but it actually becomes an idol, especially in Western culture, especially in the United States, especially in where we live. It's called entertainment. Entertainment is a form of idolatry, and you're like, wait a second, watching TV or going to a movie, that, I'm, I'm committing idolatry? No, I'm not saying that. Remember, the definition went through a series on idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is a good thing that becomes the ultimate thing. It takes the place of God in our life. So how does entertainment become an idol in our life? Well, let me just put it this way. Uh, anybody seen the movie Avengers? The latest one, Endgame. So just so you know, this what I'm going to talk about right now, no spoiler alert. I'm not going to tell you anything of what happens, except the last three minutes. No, I'm kidding. I won't tell you, because I value my life. So... Second weekend it's out is this weekend. First weekend it was out was last weekend. Last weekend, global, box office take for Avengers Endgame, $1.2 billion. Nothing has come close to that. Nothing. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's because there's this frenzy. You, everybody wants to go and see it. And it's a great movie, by the way. I highly recommend it. But if you haven't seen the first three, you're probably going to be a little bit lost. But it's a great context. But here's what I want, to, want us to understand, twofold, is that it was interesting sitting in that movie because we're, the movie theater was probably about half full. It was, we were in later, later in the day, in the afternoon. And, but it was interesting as, as different Avengers show up in the storyline, the room erupts and starts cheering. In fact, and even in the culmination at the end when there's the, the final battle scene, which every Avengers movie had, it's like people were in tears. And they were applauding, and they were like, they, I was ready, waiting for the standing ovation. It never came until the movie was over, but, but I'm like, it's a movie, people! You could tell to some of the people, it was like, no, my hero just showed up on the screen, and I'm in tears because they're there. Let me put it in this way. So this, uh, there's an author named A.J. Sabota who wrote a great book called A Glorious Dark, and it's really good because he talks about our culture, and he says this is true. He said, our culture is the most entertained culture in the history of mankind. We do more to entertain ourselves than any other culture. We spend billions of dollars on it every year. And he said, this is what his understanding of why we are so driven for entertainment. It's because, it's not because we want to, it's something we value entertainment. It's just that we're bored with our lives. In fact, he makes another assumption I think is true. We are really busy with life because if we're not busy, we're bored. And in boredom, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And it isn't that boredom meaning we don't have anything to do. It's just our life loses meaning. And what entertainment allows us is it allows us a moment where we feel human again, where we feel emotion again, where we feel something bigger. Like Avengers makes you feel like you're part of a bigger narrative. And for a moment, that's what entertainment does. It escapes the boredom of my life. Think about this. I realized in my own life little things. Like I have a hard time now with my cell phone that if I have a moment where I'm not doing anything, I, use, I pick up my cell phone and start looking at news or sports or play a game. Anybody like me? You admit? What am I doing? I'm trying to entertain my boredom. Maybe there's something in the boredom that's more meaning than the entertainment. There's something more meaningful that God wants to do in my life. So, so we have the same issue of idolatry that Paul had 2,000 years ago, so we're no different. Second thing, going on, look at verse 18. Is There is a driving human philosophy that drives the culture around us. So verse 18 says this, Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also converse with Paul. 
So these are two leading groups in Athens, and they each had their own kind of worldview of the way they understood the world around them. And it's interesting, they're very different from each other, but they actually find some commonalities. So the Epicureans, what kind of people were they? Well, Paul realized he, worked in, he walked into a context where they were what we would call a deist. Deists are people who believe that God is real and God created the world, but then he took a hike. Basically left humanity to run itself. So they acknowledge the existence of a God, but he's not present in our daily lives. And they also believed that the goal of life was pleasure. Anything that creates pleasure was the drive of their life. In fact, they worked hard to avoid anything that would be, bring physical or emotional pain. That was their drive. Does that sound familiar to anything in our culture? They also denied that the soul was immortal, which means there was no judgment, there was no accountability for life. When you died, you ceased to exist. So you live the way you want to live now because there's nothing after this. They also were rationalists, which means they rejected anything was superstitious. Does that sound anything like our culture? A lot like our culture. But also there's a flip side. The Stoics, their kind of thought process was the opposite of Epicureans. They weren't deists, they were pantheists, which means God is not, not that he's distant, he's so present, he's in everything. He's in the tree, he's in the ground, he's in human beings, he's in the building, he's present in everything, he's not absent at all. So they go the ex exact opposite of what the Epicureans, uh, they also believed that pleasure was bad, and so they opposed pleasure at every point in their lives. They believed that the soul goes on after death, unlike the Epicureans who believe that you die, when you died, you cease to exist. And so they believe there was some kind of a judgment. Here's the thing. This is the two dominating philosophies of the world in the first century. Both of them embraced a concept that there is a God. That's crazy. We always think, oh, people don't believe in God. Oh, people believe in God because fast forward to today. Did you know that 80% of all Americans admit they believe in a God? 80%. 62% of Americans believe there's an afterlife, that after you die, something else happens. That's the majority of our culture has similarities to even our own faith and also connections back to 2,000 years ago. Our world believes the same thing as, as the Epicureans and the Stoics. It just looks a little bit different today. Why is that so significant for us? Because today we live in a culture which is in the tension between Epicureanism and Stoicism, and we just don't know it. And here's how it works itself out. Those who are kind of in the Epicurean side, they believe that pleasure is the ultimate outcome of life. Therefore, we become consumeristic, driven by buying more stuff, more experiences. Why? Because it's about experiencing pleasure in our life. But right now in our culture, over the last couple of decades, you know, we're having a reaction against that that goes to the other side, which says that those kinds of things are evil. Consumerism is bad. And therefore, I'm going to simplify my life. I'm going to care about the environment. I'm going to think about things beyond myself. And I'm not going to live this fast-paced, crazy life. I'm going to make my life simple because pleasure is not a good thing for my life. That's the two competing philosophies in our culture right now. Isn't it crazy 2,000 years go, go by and we're still the same that we were back then? We still find ourselves running in those lanes. And then there's a third thing. And that is a progressive ideology. What do I mean by that? Verse 21. So comparing Paul to us, ancient to present. says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What's the latest and greatest? That's what they do. They would get around and they would say, okay, what's the latest thought? What's the latest thing in life that makes life better? And what there's an assumption underneath that ideology, which is this. Everything from the past or even in the present is not good for the future. Therefore, you have to abandon everything that used to be good and now embrace everything that now is supposed to be good. What happens in the process in that thinking is that everything that was right is now wrong. Everything that was wrong is now right. Does that sound like our culture? That's the culture we live in. All the things that historically you believe this is true and then suddenly everybody starts erasing the lines and say, oh, no, no, you had it wrong all those years. What is it? That is a progressive ideology. Please, when I use the word progressive, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the dominant ideal in our culture, which is what we have yet to be enlightened by is better than where we came from. That's the progression of mankind. And that's why so many times things like faith, Christianity, are rejected based on one idea. It's from the past, and it can't be good. Why? Because we're smarter than they used to be. We're more enlightened than the culture before us, which is not true. It's not always true. So this is the world we live in. Why is it important to understand this? 
because we live in the same world that Paul lived in 2,000 years ago, and the climate, or the, the climate and the culture that Paul lived in was ripe for the gospel. The church exploded in 2,000 years ago, exploded in the first, third, second, and third centuries. In fact, some low estimates put that at the end of the third century that there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians. Some go as high as in the millions of Christians within the first couple hundred years of Christianity. That's crazy. That was in a culture that we live in today. Why do I say that? Because you and I have to understand, Paul didn't have it somehow easier than we have it today. If the gospel took root and grew exponentially in those centuries, the same is true for today. We live at a great time because people are not far from God. God has been pursuing people for thousands of years. And we live in a context which it gets me excited that my pagan neighbors are just as close to God as these Stoics and Epicureans 2,000 years ago. I just have to show up in their life because they're searching and they just haven't found Jesus yet. So what does that mean for us? How are we supposed to take what Paul did and apply it for our lives today? Well, two verses that I want to read before we talk about this. This is the, the core, the center of what Paul is saying. And this is the understanding that we have to have. This is the way God works throughout human history, verses 26 and 27. Paul says this to this group of people, and God says this to us today. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He chooses the times and the places where people live. For what reason? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him and find him. I love this. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. That means that the people that you live around, the people you work around, the people you go to school around are not far from God. And you have been placed there for a reason. Not just to go to school, not just to work, not just to live in your neighborhood, but you're there because God is not far from the people around you and he's working in your life. So how do we embrace that to live that out for us? So reaching those who are not far from God, what does that look like? Look at back to verse 16. Five things of how you and I take what Paul did and we apply it to us today. First this, verse 16 is, be concerned. Like, what does that mean? Be concerned about what? Well, let me just unpack verse 16. Because Paul, when he comes into Athens, it says what? It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, the word provoked can mean angry, but in this context, it actually has to do with some kind of um, sympathy and and compassion, emotional compassion towards what Paul was seeing. In fact, kind of a literal translation is, is that, that this is what was eating at Paul, was the idolatry in, in, in the city that he came into. That concept of eating at is when something's eating at you, it means that you can't get away from it. It means it's, it's getting you in your heart. It's making you feel things you don't want to feel because it's actually drawing you to some kind of action. He was so provoked, it was so eating him that he couldn't be quiet. He couldn't just walk away and say, well, that's an idolatrous city. I'm just going to move on to somebody who's more receptive. No, it was eating at him. See, what God has called you to do is to be concerned about people who live around you. What is eating at us? Not our own concerns. Those things eat at us all the time. But a heart that's turned towards God and realized that God is not far from anybody, there's things that about our culture and about our city and about our neighborhood that should eat away at us. They should bother us. They should concern us. They should burden us. Because we are not living exclusively in a bubble separated from the world around us. That's why even, even when Israel was exiled and they were in Babylon, they were in a, an unrighteous, wicked place in Jeremiah 29, God reminded them, as this city goes, so you go. You're a part of the culture. So what should be, what's eating us? What is eating you about, I'll tell you what's eating me about our culture right now, even in our city, is, is suicide. You know, in our country, the suicide rate has jumped from, from 1999 till now, the last decade or the last two decades, by a third, 33%. And it's even higher among teens. It's at one of the highest rates among teens right now in recent history. And it's happened in our city. That eats at me. Why? Because I look at the young people in our culture and my heart breaks because they are growing up with things that they have access to long before most of us ever had access to. They have things they have to deal with at a younger age that I didn't have to deal with until I was in my late teens and my early 20s. They're dealing with it at 10 years old now. Things like social media, like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, there's a great upside, but there's a huge downside to that. Because when you're constantly looking at something that says you don't match up, 
Your life isn't good. You're worthless. Or the bullying that happens on social media platforms, it destroys our young people. That eats at me because it shouldn't be that way. Why? Because if young people truly understood the God who is close to them, who loves them and gave his life for them, they might actually choose life over death. What eats at you? The Holy Spirit should give you something that eats at you, that doesn't get away from you, that bothers you. Second thing, verse 17, be present. Verse 17, it says this. It says, this is talking to Paul. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So uh, Lauren mentioned this last week. Paul's custom when he would come into a city, his first thing was to go to the synagogue. He would connect with the Jews. Basically, it was almost a formality you could see when we read through the book of Acts. He would go in. He would present the truth of who Jesus is to the, to the Jews. Most likely, they reject him, and then he goes after the Gentiles. This is what happened here. So he goes to the synagogue, but then what's great is then what does he go to? He goes to the marketplace. He goes where people are. He goes where life is happening in Athens. He doesn't isolate himself from, from the world around him. He goes and he's intentionally present. This is where people are talking about the latest thing. This is where people are doing business. This is where people are living their lives. I'm going to go to where people live their lives. He's present. This is so important for us because this is a concept that we struggle with over and over again. Our default when we come to Jesus is to run from the world. And Jesus never ran from the world. Jesus coming into the world, becoming a human being, is the opposite of running from the world. It's engaging the world. It's being present in the world. Listen to what it says of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It says, As he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus hanging out with those people? That, that's not the right people to hang out with. That is the trajectory of followers of Jesus. You don't run from the culture. You engage the culture. It, in fact, there's something that goes awry in our lives when we, when we find ourselves living in a bubble. When we live in a bubble, we don't, we don't understand what, what happens is we can't even speak the language around us. Now, I know there's a line because some people are like, okay, I... I I know, but I can't, I can't go in. I'm a, I'm a former alcoholic. I can't go sit at a bar and witness to an alcoholic. I get that. But you can love them outside of a bar. You can understand what they're walking through. I know there's a tipping point for each person, but our problem is not the tipping point. Our problem is that we're running the other direction because we're afraid of the world. The world is evil. No, the enemy's evil. And sin, through the nature that we all have, it does evil things in the world, but we're meant to engage and be present in the culture. So ask this of yourself. How engaged and integrated are you in the life of your city? Do you just live in Simi Valley or Moore Park or Chatsworth or Thousand Oaks or Fillmore? Or is it your city? Do you invest? Are you involved in the things that happen in your city? Or is it just the place that you happen to live? See, if this passage is true at all, then what is happening is you think you chose where you live. Not true. God chose it for you because he wants you to be invested in where you are. Anybody go to the street fair yesterday? Three of you. I guess the first service people more go to the street fair. So, street fair, since they moved the street fair from Cochrane up to the mall, it's exploded. It was wall. Kim and I went yesterday afternoon. It was wall to wall people. That's where most of our city was yesterday. But just think about how do you do you live your life embracing what's going on in this city? Here's here's something I know. Kim and I have done this. I know another pe- a lot of people in our church have done it. But going into a business locally, and even if it's something that wouldn't be your first choice because you could go somewhere else that's faster and cheaper, why don't you choose a local business to get to know the owner, to get to know the employees, to know their story? Kim and I have been doing that for a long time. We go into State of Our Brothers all the time, and all the checkers know Kim. In fact, the funny thing is they know we foster kids, and when we show up without a baby, they're disappointed. It's like, well, hey, good to see you too. I know we're not as cute as babies, but, but there's a business, there's a, there's a place in town that we've been going to probably like the last six months, and we go there probably two or three times a month, and we've gotten to know the owners really well. In fact, we went in there yesterday after we went to the street fair. We didn't eat the street fair. We went to this business. We hung out. We talked with them a while. We've gotten to know them. We've got more people to go to their business. We, I, we pray for, I pray for them two or three times a week. They're not even followers of Jesus, but I said, Jesus, would you bless their business? And that's what we go in there. In fact, we've gone in there so often they want to give us discounts. They're like, no, you're defeating the purpose. Seriously, we've told them that. We want to pay into your business. We believe in what you're doing. Because what? As the city goes, so we go. So why don't we be present in our city? 
Because I, I believe that, that God wants our city to be better because we're here. And if we were gone, the city would feel the loss of followers of Jesus because we're supposed to make the city better. Paul was doing that in this process here, which leads to the third thing. Reaching those far from God also means understanding the culture you live in. Verse 28, Paul says this, For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own uh, poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What is going on there? This is crazy. Paul just quoted two of their secular pagan poets as a way to reach them. I want you to catch this. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to speak words that would be recorded in Scripture for the rest of human history that are not from God. They're from secular minds. How does that work? Because the last thing Paul would have done walking into Athens to a bunch of people who have no uh, Jewish background would be to quote the Old Testament to them. They wouldn't know what the Old Testament is, but they certainly know their poets. And so when Paul says to them, here, let me just say, just like your poets say, they're like, ah, why? Because he's speaking their language. He understood their culture. He could speak, the, it's not, I'm not talking about an ethnic language, I'm talking about the language of culture. Some of us struggle with talking the language of culture because we've so isolated ourselves, we don't know how to relate to people outside of you're good or you're bad, or you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. How about we relate to people on the basis of being human? This is really important. There are things in culture that can become bad and things get corrupted because of a sin nature, but we have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We call things sinful that are not sinful at all. It's what people do with them that become sinful. Maybe you're like me. Maybe this is, this is what you experienced. So when I was growing up, dancing was forbidden. I mean, it was like evil, right? It was up there with all the sins. You don't drink, you know, and you don't dance. You don't do any of that kind of stuff, right? Because then you're going to go to hell, right? Anybody had that speech when you're grown up, right? In fact, I went, when I went to Bible college, I had to sign a covenant that I would, one of the things that I was not allowed to do, I was not allowed to participate in social dancing. That was right next to immorality. Those were, that's how close it was. And that was a problem for me because after the time I was going to a church that actually didn't believe that. We actually hosted dances for our college groups and we did it with a bunch of different churches. So I had to sit down with the dean of the college and say, I have a conflict. I'm on leadership and we actually put on dances. And this is, this is what the rule was. Well, you can go but you can't dance. I couldn't even move any muscle in my body <laughs> because that's evil. It's not evil. Some, what some people do with dancing, yeah, it does become evil. But the, the culture, the reason we struggle with culture is because we don't have to speak language. I'll tell you, one of my, my top three TV shows on, on TV right now is World of Dance. If you haven't seen it, I am giving an endorsement for World of Dance. It's incredible what God has gifted people to do that I could never do, to choreograph and then execute stuff that is incredible. I actually sit there and I marvel at the amazing God that we have that creates people with that kind of, kind of ability that I know that I don't have, but I can be in awe of it. But if I was living, oh, all dancing is wrong, then man, I better turn the channel quick. See, here's the thing. What, what, what is the best way for us to understand culture? Is to live as Christ followers in the culture, not separate ourselves out from the culture. Let me, let me give you an analogy so you understand. So does that mean we need more Christian musicians? We need more Christian artists? We need more Christian architects? We need more Christian this, this? No, we don't. We need more artists and singers and architects and painters who are Christ followers. Let me show you the difference. When we have to slap a Christian label on something, it defeats the purpose of what we're doing. It isolates us from the world. No shade on Christian music, but I'll be honest, I don't listen to most of it because the best stuff is not in Christian music. It's not. It's outside of that. And I know, just like dance, music can be a, an avenue that's used for evil. I get that, but music itself is not evil. And because of that, what I, in fact, I mentioned this first service, and I'll say it again. Thank God for the millennial generation. I know those of you who are older are like, man, millennials, I can't stand them. I love them because they see the world differently than us old people. Seriously. And I've talked to so many millennials, and this is what they'll say to me. They're followers of Jesus, but they don't want to be known as a Christian anything. And it's not because they're afraid to be known as a Christian. It's because they want to be who God called them to be without having to slap the label on it. 
So they want to be an artist who follows Jesus. They want to be a painter who follows Jesus. They want to be a musician who follows Jesus. And as they are doing their craft and doing it to the best of their ability, at a relational level, people discover you're a Christ follower? Instead of slapping the label of Christian on it, which then just for the world, you're now speaking a different language. How do we reach people who don't know Jesus? We get in culture next to them and live our lives the way God called us to live. But we live our lives in following Jesus in the culture. Okay, I'll step back off my soapbox. This is a huge one. The world is struggling because Christians have pulled back, and Jesus never pulled back from sinners. That is the amazing mystery of Jesus. How could the God of the universe have dinner with sinners and them not run from the room screaming because they're so convicted? Why? Because Jesus loved them more than shining the light of truth in their eyes and blinding them. He gave them the truth in him, his humanity by being a human just like them. I'll move on. It's getting quiet. Two more things. Reaching for those who are far from God also means to seek revelation. Verse 23, well, I'll explain what I mean by that. It says, for Paul writes this, First, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I, this I proclaim to you. So what's going on here? Is now Paul gets to a point where he finds something, he's so engaged in their culture, he understands their culture, he identifies right away, which wouldn't you just love it if like someone sets up, hey, we were worshiping something, we don't even know what the name is. They're like, oh, I'll give you the name. It seems like a setup. But he's identifying because their, their bent is worship, it's just that they're worshiping the wrong thing. He wants to bring revelation to them and show them who they're supposed to be worshiping. So he takes something within their culture and he's going to reveal who Jesus is to them. And that's important for, for us because how do you and I, we don't, this is where our cultures are different. We don't have public gatherings where people get around and talk about the latest thing. We don't have that. We have it like maybe through the internet and stuff like that, but we don't have public marketplaces where that occurs. So how do you demonstrate who Jesus is in your context? How do you help people to see that your worship is directed towards him? It's the way we live our lives. You are the altar of worship to Jesus. It's the way you live your life. It's mobile. It's not in one location. It's everywhere you go. It's every relationship you have. You are the demonstration of who Jesus is. This is what's so important. That's why Jesus chose to use the church, not just to come and to speak every person individually, but to use human beings like us to reach the world through relationship. That means every encounter we have with every human being is the opportunity to represent a picture of who Jesus is to that individual, whether it's somebody that we've known for our whole life or maybe somebody we have a short encounter with. This is important. The picture of who Jesus is comes through his followers. Now, some of you are like, ah, I'm not a very good representation. I don't want them to get the idea that this is what Jesus looks like. Let me ask you a question. I think most of us at some point have been identified either self or by somebody else as a Christian, but I'm pretty convinced most of us have never been mistaken for Jesus himself, right? We haven't, but we should be. There should be something about our life. If anybody has any concept of who God is or Jesus is, they look at our lives and they think, man, I wonder if that's something of what Jesus was like whatever it is, big or small in our lives, every encounter that we have. So I told you about our flight back from Portland, our flight up, on, up to Portland. So it's always fun. It, the first like, couple minutes of a flight are fun for me because I always can tell what kind of flight it's going to be. person who sits next to me, I, by the way, I'm not like a raving evangelist on a plane. I'm not pulling out the four spiritual laws and walking them through on the napkin illustration of how they're a sinner. No, I don't do that. But I want to find out who they are and, and just strike a conversation. You can tell within the first 30 seconds if someone wants to talk or if they just want to be left alone. And if they want to be left alone, I leave them alone. If they want to put their headphones on, I'm not going to scream the gospel over whatever they're listening to, okay? So, but there's this, this sweetest little 83-year-old Japanese woman sits next to me on the plane. And I can tell her anxiety level is really high. So she's like breathing heavy. The flight attendant had to help her get, she was one of the last ones on the plane, get her, her bag into the overhead bin. So she sits down and she just takes this deep breath. I said, hey, are you doing okay? She goes, ah, this is kind of hard for me. I said, well, what's going on? She goes, well, I'm traveling up to Portland to, to see my friend who's turning 80. We're celebrating her birthday this weekend. She goes, but I never travel without my son. He always helps me. He always travels with me wherever I go. And this is the first time I've ever traveled without my son. And she said, he, he followed me as far as they let him, waving to me as I got on the plane, as far as he could help me. And then they kind of helped me get on the plane. And I said, wow. I said, that must be hard. She goes, it is. I said, do you need help? 
I said, do you need help? Like, when we get off the plane, can we help? She goes, that would be great. I said, okay, when we get off the plane, because she had never navigated uh, Portland International before. She didn't know where she was going. I said, we've been there a few times. I said, just follow us, and we'll get you there. And then we had this great conversation. She grew up in Oxnard, which lived in Ventura for 12 years. And then she said, well, why are you going up to Portland? And I said, well, because we're going up. My daughter's graduating from Bible college. Ding, ding, ding. Now she knows I'm a Christian. That was not intentional. It wasn't a bait and switch. So we're just having this conversation. She opens up her bag, and she must have been cooking for months because she had, like, all these treats she's pulling out. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's like you don't need to eat. You don't need to buy food on the plane. You should just hand it out, and everybody could eat it. So we just had this great dialogue. And then she started reading, reading this book, and it's all in Japanese, so I couldn't eavesdrop to see what she was reading. But So we just we talked, and then we landed, and, and so we, I got her bag out, and I said, just stick right behind us because, you know, everybody's getting off the plane, and it's kind of crazy. Everyone's going fast. And so she stayed behind us, and so we're walking through the terminal, and, and every once in a while I look back, and I'm like, oh, honey, she's, I told, said, Kim, she's like 20 feet behind us now. We're losing her. We'd slow down, and I'd turn around, and she'd make eye contact with me. I said, are you okay? And she's like, thumbs up. So we're moving through the terminal. We were like the last gate walking through the terminal all the way. And then we got right to where there's, this, there's security on one side and there's an exit that you go out and people who are going to greet you at the airport are there. And so we got there. Kim and I were going to go to the restroom. So I turned around and I pointed and I said, that's where you go. It's a big sign that says exit. And so she goes, got it. So she starts making her way. Kim and I go to the bathroom. So remember, she's 83. She moves kind of slow, okay? So we get just through the, as, as, after the bathroom, we get through the, the entrance into the outer part of the airport, the exit. And sure enough, she's like 10 feet out there with her 80-year-old her friend. And they're walking along, and they're, we're behind them. They don't see us. And so I walk up behind, and I said, hey, you found her. And she stops, and she looks at us, and then she looks at her friend, and she goes, these are the people I told you about. <laughs> she goes, these are the people I sat next to. They were so nice. They helped me find you. They got my bag for me. They got me through the airport. These are the people that I told you about. I just looked at Kim with this big smile. I just thought, at least for that two-hour flight, this woman had a small glimpse of this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. This is what Jesus would have done if he sat next to her on the plane. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying every encounter we have, someone should walk away having a better revelation of who Jesus is in our life. And they should say, man, I, I, wanna, I wanna find out what it means to be a Christian because if that's what that means, then I wanna be like that. And then they discover who Jesus is. Then there's a final thing that's this. Verses 30 and 31. Eventually, in our connection with people who are far from God, there is a call for repentance. So this is what Paul says. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Obviously, we know he's talking about Jesus. That eventually there is a connection that brings us to the place where Jesus calls somebody to leave the life that they used to live, just as what happened to Paul in his life, to embrace the life that Jesus has for them. That's called repentance. It's turning from the way we used to be. And that means in our connection with people, there is an eventual call. It isn't the call to scream repent at people or turn or you will burn. That is not the call to repentance. The call to repentance is not just a verbal call. It's a relational one. It's one that we call people as we journey towards Jesus, we help them to understand they're not far from God, and we turn and we help them walk towards God. And God is not a mile away. God is inches away. But we have to turn and help people on that journey. Why? Because we are in a season of God's patience. God is waiting because he doesn't want people to perish. In fact, listen to first, or excuse me, Second Peter 2, 8 through 10. Peter says this. He says, But do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, the, the, with the Lord, uh, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re uh, reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is Peter talking about? He's saying that God wants all people to come to a place of repentance where they turn from the life they live to the life that Jesus has called them to, which is reconnecting back with God. But the reason God hasn't returned yet, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, is because God loves people. You think, man, why did you, anybody ever want Jesus to come back? Especially when you're going through the worst moment of your life? Come back now, because it's all about me, right? What about the billions of people who don't know Jesus yet? Jesus patiently waits and patiently waits. Why? Because we know in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said himself 
that this gospel will be preached to all nations, which means all people groups, all ethnicities, all subgroups, all languages, and then the end will come. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet, because there's still people around the world who don't know Jesus. There are people in Simi Valley who don't know Jesus and haven't even had their culture invaded yet by someone who knows Jesus. And that's why God is patiently waiting for his church to look at their lives differently, that there are no people far from God. God is close to everybody, but they haven't discovered who he is yet. And God wants us to walk alongside people. And this is the shift that is gradually happening, I'm, I know, across the body of Christ, but in our church as well. And it's a hard shift, I know. Is that historically the pattern of church is if we could just get people to come to church then the pastor can give the invitation and they can get saved. That used to be effective. But it's not as effective as it used to be. In fact, it's not really very effective anymore. I'll tell you why. Here's an example. Easter was a great day for us. Biggest attendance that we've had in a long time. We had over 30 people raise their hands to make a decision for Christ. That's awesome. But at the same time, I know that we're not called to get people to make decisions. We're here to get people to follow Jesus. And a decision doesn't always translate into following. About four or five of those people actually made their way in to get prayer or to get a Bible. And so let's just say, let's just say on Easter at Antioch, for sure, beyond the shadow of a doubt, one person got saved. That would be a success, right? We would agree. And let's say that's replicated every single Sunday at Antioch. One person gets saved. That's 52 people who are going to spend their eternity with Jesus. That's awesome. But it's not even close to keeping up with population or what's going on in our city. But what if Antioch, a church of three to 400 people, everybody realized that people are not far from God, and God is at work in my neighborhood, in my job, in my school, in my family. And God has placed me there. Why? Because people just don't know who he is yet. They're religious. They're, they serve idols. They're worshiping something. They just need to know they got the wrong identity. And God's placed me there for that reason. What would happen if that was true every single year? If just one, we saved one person came to Jesus, that means at the end of the year it'd be three or four hundred more people. What if that one person got somebody else got came to Jesus because of them? And the next year it would what? It would become eight hundred, and then it would become sixteen hundred. And do the math: inside of twenty years, you'd reach the world. That's why. As a church, we've embraced living in our city, living out the gospel with our neighbors. Why? Because you're far more effective than I'm ever going to be with your friends or neighbors. I can't save anybody. You know their language and their culture and their lifestyle better than I ever will. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what the church was 2,000 years ago. And let me end with this. What does it look like to walk with people towards Jesus? One of the coolest things last weekend is in the middle of all the stuff we were doing with Courtney, and she had all these different things that were a part of her graduation. But on Sunday morning before we ended up, the second service, we drove out to where she was at the church she was at because they did a special thing for their graduates. But the first service, earlier in the morning, we went to the church that we pastored for seven years in Newburgh. And it was really cool. I had texted the pastor, now we're good friends, and I said, hey, we're going to slip into first service real quick. He, he said, that would be great. So we got there, and as soon as we walked in the lobby, it was like family reunion. All these people we hadn't seen for like five years, and we're hugging people, and it's just a great thing. It was so funny. They, they, had a, they have a new associate pastor who doesn't know who we are, and so he immediately, I guess he started texting the pastor, do you know that the former pastor's in the lobby like it was some controversy? And he's like, yeah, I know. He told me he's coming. In fact, he came out and gave me a hug. It was great. It's just really good timing, but you have people coming up and just asking us how we're doing, and we're seeing how people are doing, and this one gal in particular, she comes up, and she gives me a hug, but then she gives Kim like this huge embrace, like she won't let go. And this is the story of my life, by the way. People love Kim more than me, and I know why, okay? Because if you met my wife, she's amazing. But she's just hugging her, and she's hanging on to her, and so she's like asking us how we're doing, and we're asking how she's doing, and it was great. And so then we finally make our way into the service, and we had to cut out early because we had to get out to another city where Courtney was. So we're left about five minutes before the service ended, and we're out in the lobby, and this gal comes running out of the service. And she grabs us again. She goes, I had to give you one more hug. And then she says to Kim, she says, I've never met anyone like you. She goes, I've never met anyone like you who comes alongside, takes somebody by the arm, and then walks towards Jesus and walks life out. See, this woman we had gotten to know about 12 years ago. And when she her and her husband came to our church, they were in the most broken state of their life. 
They were struggling even to know what it meant to follow Jesus. Their marriage was struggling. And Kim came alongside her and helped her walk towards Jesus. Their marriage began to get better. In fact, she, after a couple of years, she became the one person that oversaw all of our first impressions, all of our greeters, all the kind of people who were connecting at the door. She oversaw that. And so Kim was meeting with her. And so she's now, she's in tears as we're leaving because she realized how much of an impact Kim had made in her life. What would it be like if you had one or two or five or ten of those people that you helped walk towards Jesus, that you got them to know who Jesus is? Their life was going in the wrong direction, but you just simply grabbed them by the arm and said, no, we're going this way. We're not going that way anymore. Because that's in our world today. That's what it takes. It's what it takes is that we have to, that's why Jesus said, go and make disciples. Disciples is a process of walking out what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm going to close with this. In fact, um, we're, we're not going to have a, a song at the end, but I just I want to close and then I'll, and I'll pray. But something that's so important about what, what is at stake here, and this is why I, if you've gotten to know me, I'm, I'm relatively motivated about this reality, about that we need to be the church in our neighborhoods. And, and I've, we've seen people in our neighborhood now come to Christ and actually coming to Antioch and following Jesus because we believe this that where God's place is where we're supposed to be because there are people who are around you right now that your, your influence in their life will change their destiny. It'll change their destiny. You don't know it. It may be a small part, but it's gonna change their lives. So I'll close with this. On Friday, we got to do something that is one of the joys, and also it's kind of bittersweet, but it's one of the joys of being a foster parent. So this last Friday, one of the babies that we had for over a year in our household, she got adopted by her forever family. It was the coolest thing. They invited us to be a part of it. We've been through a lot of adoptions before and watched it. But uh, she was the one that really, she had gotten our heart. We had her from birth, and we were really invested in her. And so it was hard when she left our house. She was the one that made me cry more than all the babies that left our house. In fact, I had done really good until about three days after she had left and I was moving some furniture around to get to something and I moved and one of her toys had slid in our entertainment center. I lost it because it just felt the loss. But knowing she had gone to a family who are a great family, followers of Jesus. They had adopted a couple other kids. But the coolest thing was to be there and watch. Now she's been with her forever family for about a year or so and she'd fully integrated into that family. And she's the center of attention. Oh my gosh, she's like the center of the world to that family. And they're all there just clamoring. And just, I just watched her and realized this is exactly what God had purposed for her. That she came out of a very broken, addictive background with her parents. And now because of our small influence in her life and now this family embracing her, her I just looked at her and thought, she has no idea. She has no idea that in these moments over the first two years of her life, her life has changed forever. In fact, we told her her, her her adoptive family, the biggest win for us is that we know that she's been placed in a family that's gonna make sure she knows who Jesus is. And that's gonna be her destiny. And we got to play a very small piece of her role in that. And I'm not saying go be a foster parent, although that's a great thing, by the way, and you've heard me talk about that. But listen, what part does God want you to play in the journey that other people have towards him? Because the beauty of what God describes our role in his connect connection into his family is that we are adopted into his family. And somebody gets you to the adoption. Someone helps you get there. Who is it in your life that God's saying you're supposed to be the person that helps that person get adopted into the family of God? Let's close our eyes. Let's pray.